Ladies and gentlemen, my name's Andrew Franklin, and I'm honoured and delighted to be chairing this event with A.C. Grayling, Anthony Grayling. At the uh, front of this book, Towards the Light, which Anthony is going to be talking about today, he lists 12 previously published books. And I asked him about that, and he said, well, actually, there's another 12 or 13, but they're entirely academic, so I didn't list them. I also discovered today that when he was an undergraduate at Sussex, and he may or may not tell you the dishonourable reason that he chose to go to Sussex University, he found the work not challenging enough and signed up and did two uh, BAs at the same time before going on to do his postdoctoral work and then becoming a professor at Birkbeck. He's been called the cleverest man in Europe and uh, he is perhaps a phenomenon as well as a writer and a thinker. This book is not published until the 10th of September, so we're extremely honoured and privileged to have him with us here today to talk about Towards the Light. Thank you very much. AC Grayling. Thank you very much. I, I have to tell you that some, some at least of that is news to me. <laughs> and also, the thing about the, the academic books, so my publishers didn't list them in the, you know, the previous publications in this book. And I'm always slightly amused by the fact that the expression, it's only academic, means it doesn't matter. You know, who, who cares about it? Um, and, and in a way, that's rather a pity, because th those of us who have been given the opportunity, the privilege, really, to spend our time reading and thinking, um, should take seriously the fact that that implies a kind of responsibility, a duty, in a way, to participate in the great conversation that society has with itself about everything that matters, and try to bring into that conversation the, the fruits of one's, of one's privileges, the, the fact that one has been reading and thinking, particularly in the case of philosophy. I always tell um, people who are coming to study at, uh, at London University, uh, undergraduates, I say to them, the wonderful thing about philosophy is that it gives you a license to stick your nose into absolutely everything. And you can be interested in everything, and you can even pass yourself off as an expert on most of them. But uh, if you do, then you must realize that it's uh, up to you to make some kind of contribution. Back in the 19th century at the great University of Basel, the, the regents of the university required the professors at the university, and at that time they included people like uh, Jacob Burkhardt, who was a great Renaissance man, uh, and uh, um, Friedrich Nietzsche. They required their professors not only to educate their undergraduates, their students, but to educate the community. Well, I think now, at the beginning of the 21st century, it would be a bit pretentious of academics to think they could educate the community. But they certainly ought to be taking part in the, in the conversation that the community has. And uh, in um, the, the, the things uh, I write, I try to do that. This book, um, Towards the Light, is part of that endeavor, to try to put out into the public debate some ideas of really great significance for us now, I think, as I'll try to explain. Um, in in uh, um, past uh, very pleasant occasions that I've had standing up here in uh, uh, Edinburgh at the Book Festival, I've talked about uh, something very close to my heart, which is the idea of each of us individually as human beings taking responsibility for thinking about our values, thinking about what kinds of lives are really worthwhile, making some choices for ourselves about how to live them. You may have um, perhaps heard it said often enough before that life is very short, and it really is. It's, it's less than a thousand months long, as I was saying to Andrew earlier, we were doing the sums together, how many months a, a, an average human lifespan is. 
and uh, most of us have used up a few of them already. So it uh, puts a kind of urgency uh, uh, onto us to think a bit about whether we are living as we would live if we were to make serious choices about our lives, about our goals and ambitions. And in the, the very ill-tempered debate that we are having in society at the moment about religion, for example, about terrorism, uh, about the uncertain future of this world of ours, which we thought looked pretty stable and, and uh, headed in the right direction in the late 20th century. In, in that debate, one thing which is sometimes left out of account is what kind of ethics you would have, what kind of outlook on life you would have if you really were to settle down to this very vital question of what matters in life and how you would live your life. And you know, in the debate about religion, there is uh, uh, um, a tripartite division between the, the different concerns that come up. There is the question about the intrinsic merits of religious worldviews, and so this is a debate that um, people of faith might have with atheists, let's say, or agnostics. Then there is the question about secularism, about the degree to which religious organizations and churches ought to have a presence in the public domain, and to what extent they should influence public policy. And there will be churchmen, churchwomen, who think um, with uh, uh, atheists that there should be quite a sharp separation. They will be secularists just as much as people who aren't religious. And after all, secularism began in medieval times with churchmen who didn't want the temporal powers interfering with their prerogatives. And then the third thing is the question about what kind of ethics a person would uh, have if he or she were not a person of one or another religion. What kind of non-religious secular uh, ethics would be available to somebody who was very thoughtful about life? And that ethics is, with a small h, a humanistic ethics. That's to say one which is premised on the thought that our attempt to identify the good and to strive for it and to base our relationships with others and our responsibility to ourselves on it would be on our best understanding of human nature and the human condition. And because it is human nature and the human condition which provides the premises for that thinking, it gives us our reason for calling it humanism. But here is a very significant fact about the whole endeavor of being humanistic in that small h sense. That in order to make those sorts of choices, in order to get access to the materials, the literature, the, the philosophy, the ideas that might feed into your own thinking about the good life, the life well worth living. You've got to be free to do it. You have to be uh, uh, allowed to make choices for yourself, to exercise your own conscience, to inquire, to ask questions, to debate, to disagree, to be skeptical. You've got to be free in all those ways in order to have a chance to build a life which is your own, the chosen life, the autonomous life. And that means that you have to have individual liberty in a very crucial sense, not merely so that you can think and inquire, but also so that you can act on your choices. In order to be uh, someone who lives a good life by your own lights, a life lived according to values that you have identified and chosen and for which you can make a good case, you have to be a free individual. And therefore, individual liberty is an essential to the idea of the moral life. And in this book, Towards the Light, I address the question of individual liberty. So central is it indeed to our, our thinking about our, uh, the best world. 
And uh, I do it for a polemical reason, which I'll, I'll explain in a moment. Looking back across the last five centuries of the modern West's history, I, I noticed something really quite extraordinary, that you can re-describe the history of our civilization, Western civilization, in terms of a series of unfolding and interconnected liberation struggles. It started in the 16th century at the time of the Reformation, when people like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and others were broken away from the church, as it was then called. We now think of it as the Roman Catholic Church. They'd broken away from the church because they wanted to believe and practice in their own way, according to their understanding of what was required of them in the spiritual life. What they wanted was liberty of conscience. They wanted to, 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 to believe and to exercise their faith and practice it in ways that seemed good to them, not in ways that were being imposed by the church as a central authority in Christendom, even indeed to the extent of uh, terrible persecutions. Because, of course, in the late 15th century, under Torquemada in Spain, under the, in the dual monarchy in Spain at its great uh, moment, uh, there were terrible and terrifying persecutions of people who were regarded by the church as uh, heretics, not just people who wouldn't subscribe to the orthodoxies of the church, but also to Jews and to those who had converted from Judaism to Christianity, were regarded with great suspicion in case they proved to be a kind of fifth column that would subvert the faithful and introduce into the faith all sorts of unorthodoxies. And the, the Inquisition prompted people to think, because of the, the horrors of it, people being burned to death at the stake in great public displays, uh, it prompted some people to think, surely this can't be right. Erasmus, for example, in a little moment at the beginning of the 16th century when there was a, a sort of a lull in the persecutions, uh, pointed out two things. He said, if some people are wrong about the faith, then they're going to get into enough trouble after they're dead. Why bother with them now? So just leave it up to you know, God or whoever to, to deal with, it, with the problem and let, let us have a generous attitude towards differences of opinion. That was one, one thought. And the other thought is that a lot of the persecution was premised on the fact that there were very complex theological minutiae, you know, whether the uh, presence in the mass was um, such that the bread had actually turned into flesh, or whether it was just that, um, you know, the spirit of Jesus was very near the bread and so on. All these differences about transubstantiation, consubstantiation. And in fact, the longer the words, the more blood and sweat flowed over interpretations of them. And Erasmus said, look, um, we are told in the Bible story that uh, the penitent thief on the cross uh, got enough of Christian theology in a couple of minutes to be saved. If that's the case, why can't, you know, why can't the essentials of the faith be such that everybody could agree on those and leave all the theological disputations um, to you know, the people who have the time and inclination for them? And th that, that, that pair of, of insights, which are, are very interesting really, fed into a debate among some who wanted to be able to exercise their uh, faith in their own way. And so they demanded the, the freedom, the liberty to um, believe as they saw fit. Liberty of conscience, tremendously important. And of course, people continued to suffer for it even after the Re Reformation had begun. But the last straw for a man called Sebastian Castellio, a very, very significant figure, almost lost to history in a way, was that the Protestants, those who had protested against uh, Roman orthodoxy, themselves began to persecute. And indeed, Calvin was uh, instrumental in having uh, a man burned at the stake, a man called Michael Servetus, who was in fact a sort of proto-Unitarian. 
uh, and um, Sebastian Castellio, who had been a friend of Calvin's, in fact, had worked with him a little bit earlier on, thought that this was the last straw. If the Protestants were beginning to do it too, this was very bad news, and, and the argument really had to be put and won about liberty of conscience. And one can trace to that moment almost, because, I mean, history, the way history works is that you get what um, has become fashionable to call tipping point moments, or moments of a rather sort of crucial character where a lot of people, having not much thought about matters or having gone along with arguments, suddenly say, yes, actually, that, that's a point, really. You can't, you can't go back on this point. And this debate that uh, sprang up in uh, Castellio's criticisms of what Calvin had done in Geneva uh, proved to be very significant. Despite the fact that if you look at the history of the 16th, 17th century, what you see, of course, are the terrible wars of religion, mainly based on the attempt by, by Rome and by the Habsburg um, uh, monarchy, Holy Roman uh, Emperor, trying to win back Protestant Europe for the Catholic cause. And these wars went on right up until 1648, right up until uh, the, the end of the Thirty Years' War. Uh, and um, yet against this background, there were people thinking and saying and asserting and demanding and getting little increments of freedom. The freedom first to believe, and then as soon as that argument had been won, as soon as freedom of conscience had uh, uh, persuaded thinking people that that was a, a line in the sand that people shouldn't cross over, uh, further demands were made, not just for liberty of conscience, but for liberty of thought and inquiry. That's, that's a more general thing, and in its way, an even more interesting thing, because it meant that in the late 16th century and early 17th century, as the scientific revolution was beginning, as people wanted to ask questions about the natural world and to investigate it in ways that were not trammeled by religious orthodoxy, the demand for the freedom to do that, the freedom to inquire, to research, put forward hypotheses, to test them, to construct theories that did not depend upon, say, scripture or the teachings of the church. That demand became a very important one, and it was an extremely fruitful one in helping to generate the scientific revolution. As you know, Giordano Bruno, who was burned at the stake in Rome in, in the year 1600 for reasons other than the fact that he accepted the Copernican view of uh, the solar system with the sun at the center, heliocentric view, um, had among uh, the indictments leveled against him the fact that he was a subscriber to the new science. And for quite a time, I mean, right up until the trial of Galileo in the early 1630s, the church did everything it possibly could to halt the progress of scientific thought, to, to stop people advancing theses, such as the Copernican one, which directly controverted scripture. Because as you know, in the beautiful words of the King James Bible, it says in the 102nd Psalm, uh, he, meaning God, has laid, his, laid the foundations of the world so that it will not be moved forever. He lays the beams of his house in the waters and he walks on the wings of the wind. Beautiful lines. And the idea is that the earth is at the, at the center and everything else goes around it. If you controvert this by espousing the Copernican view, then you're directly controverting scripture and the teachings of the church. And Galileo had to recant this view. He had to say, and we all must feel sorry for him, that the earth didn't move for Galileo. He says, yes, the earth doesn't move. And he escaped uh, uh, burning by, by recanting and spent the rest of his life under house arrest. That was in the early 1630s. This was when the scientific revolution had really begun to get underway. But it had begun to get underway because more and more people were asserting this right, this entitlement to a liberty of inquiry, liberty of thought, liberty of discussion. An interesting figure in this, by the way, is when they, Descartes, 
he of the I drink, therefore I am, as you all know, all centered on the pub walls. And uh, well, one great thing about him was that he wanted to try to urge the church to accept that one could examine the sublunary realm, the natural world, the material world, without controverting scripture, because scripture and the church dealt with things eternal, and uh, science and philosophy dealt with things of, uh, of this life, of, of the present and now, and that um, there was a, a way of making them consistent, and so they needn't be in competition with one another. And in arguing this, Descartes was trying to get, to carve out, as it were, a space for liberty of inquiry. But the church saw and understood, because of course they weren't fools, that an unrestricted liberty of inquiry would eventually call into question the very foundations of church doctrine, and so indeed it proved. Because after the end of the Thirty Years' War, after the Westphalian settlement in Europe, gradually Europe uh, became a more and more and more secularized place. And in very short order, in historical terms, in less than a century, in the Enlightenment, um, people were directly calling into question even the truths of religion themselves. And that was something that the church had correctly predicted. So in the 17th century, you got, you got the liberty of conscience turning into liberty of thought and inquiry. Now, as soon as that started to get a grip, people began to say, well, if I can ask questions, if I can think, if I can look into the world, why is it that I can't have more say in how my life is run? Why is it that I'm excluded entirely from the government of my life, from the government of my country? People like John Locke, for example, who was a, 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 not so much a prophet as a, as a justifier of the, the so-called glorious revolution in England in 1688, talking about the, uh, the rights that uh, landed people, propertyed people, had vis-a-vis um, -vis the crown in the government of their own life, lives, was the beginning of, of a process in which the idea of political liberties, liberties of the person, not just of the mind, but of the whole person in society, were beginning to come into focus. And it's a mere century from the publication of Locke's work uh, to the American and uh, French um, revolutions, where they got their independence from the old order, and in which John Locke's words were quoted in extenso uh, and verbatim in the documents of those two revolutions. But this idea of political liberty, of political participation, of freedom of the person, not just of the mind, had really begun to take hold. And you see a, a process of burgeoning and speeding up. As soon as the idea of liberty had managed to escape in the 16th century and get out there into public debate, so it began to grip more and more minds. And in the 18th century, you see people like Antony Benezet, another rather forgotten character in history, but a very important one, because he was the man, uh, the uh, French Huguenot, who had been educated because his family had to escape persecution under Louis XIV in France. He'd been educated in, uh, in Britain, and then as a young man had gone to America, they converted from being a Huguenot to being a Quaker. And while there, as working as a teacher in a Quaker school, had begun in the evenings to teach uh, the children of black slaves. And of course, immediately saw the falsehood of um, claims to the effect that black slaves were in all sorts of ways, educationally, intellectually, and morally inferior to, um, to, to their white masters. And began to agitate first among the Quakers and then more generally for abolition of slavery the middle of the 18th century. The idea of the, of the sanctity of the liberty of the person, of the individual, had, even by the middle of the 18th century, reached the extent that an abolitionist movement could begin. And once it had begun, of course, it was unstoppable. So again, a sort of a, a, a too ignored fact that after the um, American independence was gained, 
before the end of the 18th century, all the, the northern states of the United States of America, as it had by then become, had abolished slavery and had abolished the slave trade. I mean, we think that slavery continued as it did indeed uh, in the southern states right up until the end of the Civil War, middle of the 19th century, but the, the slave trade, the importation of slaves had been abolished long before then. And this was the result of the work of people who saw that individual liberty was a possession of all human beings, not just of some, and that slavery was a, a persisting evil in its own right. And during the, the abolitionist movement, during the right from the middle of the 18th to the middle of the 19th century, all those who were concerned with freeing slaves, of extending the idea of human liberty and dignity to all individuals, included among them many women, women who were actively involved in the campaigns. And of course, immediately they became involved in those campaigns, they began to say, well, what about, what about the position of women in society? The fact that women are as disenfranchised as slaves are. They can't vote, they can't uh, hold office in uh, state and federal government. Um, they, uh, in some cases, can't own property in their own rights. When they marry, their property goes directly to their husbands. And in all sorts of ways, they're disenfranchised individuals and no different from slaves, in fact. It's a different kind of slavery. In fact, Mary Wilsoncroft, who is a very significant figure in this, said to those of her acquaintances who were actively engaged in the um, anti-slavery movement in the 1790s in, in Britain, she said to them, I deeply honor what you're doing about the slaves, but I want you to look at the slave in your kitchen. Now, once those ideas had begun to get a grip, it was very, very difficult to put them back, stuff them back into the bottle, so to speak. These ideas were out there among people who were thinking and reflective and who wanted to see them, see them work in all sorts of different ways. In the 19th century, the idea of wage slavery, the idea of the fact that people who were moving from the towns into the cities and, and working in, in factories, children working 12 and 15 hours a day. Here I open a little footnote, just because it is apropos the question of, of liberty. When, the, um, when Shaftesbury was trying to get the uh, number of working hours for children reduced from more than 12 hours a day to 10 or 8 hours a day, <clears throat> he was asked in Parliament what children would do with their free time. Wouldn't they just be a nuisance? And perhaps, you know, merit getting asbos or something like that. They should be at work and, uh, and working away. <coughs> so the idea of, of uh, individuals having free time, which is part, of course, of individual liberty, the idea of, of people having lives outside work, outside the economic um, uh, machine, was something else that had to be argued for. The idea of liberty had to be extended into and applied even under different names in these different spheres. And so in the 19th century, you see the women's movement, you see the movement for workers' rights and, and freedoms, uh, and you see the continuation of the political debate about participation, about individuals having some say in the government of their own lives so entrenched in the public debate and, 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 and moving towards the kind of denouement that uh, we're familiar with. That is, that after the Second World War and after uh, egregious examples of individuals and groups of people having their liberties taken away by force and subjected to the worst indignities and atrocities, and I think particularly of the Holocaust, that when the world community got together after the Second World War, they said, let us take all these ideas that have been so powerful, yeasted away so uh, uh, importantly in the history of the modern West, and let's try and encapsulate them in a document that we can all sign up to and agree on. This was the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was agreed uh, at the um, founding of the United Nations um, after the war. Chaired, by the way, by um, uh, FDR, uh, Roosevelt's widow, Eleanor Roosevelt. 
And it was a committee which had on it people from the third world, from all around the world indeed, from all different traditions, which is an interesting fact because when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was adopted, the people who liked it most were people in third world countries and colonized countries. People who liked it least were people in the great powers, United States, Soviet Union, Britain, France, because it was going to interfere with their activities in their spheres of, of, of interest. Now, of course, it's the other way around. Now the great powers use it as a stick to beat um, miscreant uh, um, people in the third world with, uh, quite rightly in, in most cases. But it's very interesting that uh, it was seen in the, in the late 40s, by, at least by intellectuals from many, many different cultures and backgrounds in the world, as applying universally to, to human beings. And central to that conception, that bold, because it is a very, very bold conception of a, 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 a sort of framework of human rights that could be accepted by every, everybody, is the idea of the individual and the individual having freedoms to make a life, to do things like choose whom you marry, uh, get an education, have children, have a family life, um, be respected uh, in relation to, to, to privacy, not to be treated in ways that are cruel and inhuman. In other words, a, a concrete application of what uh, a free life would be like for an individual. And so we've seen the coming together of this great movement towards individual liberty over the last five centuries, tremendously hard won, hard fought for, hard argued for, finally realizing itself, at least in, in principle, at least as an aspiration in the second half of the 20th century. And I would nominate, I suppose, um, perhaps 1989, perhaps when the Berlin Wall came down, when we could all of us sit back on our laurels a little bit and say, if we were clear-minded about this, well, in fact, we, of course, we don't actually have the maximum degree of individual liberty, and we don't actually have democracy, and we don't have transparent government, and we don't have equality for women, and we don't actually have a rule of law in an unfettered sense. But we've, we've got quite a lot of all those things. And, but even more importantly, in a way, we define ourselves in terms of those aspirations. Even if we don't actually have them, that's how we define ourselves. Don't forget that in the 19th century, most people regarded the concept of democracy with horror. What? Mob rule, they would say. You know, the, you know, the people without education, property, and a mortgage, and everything else voting. So you know, the, 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 the fact that democracy has become a sort of you know, feel-good word. President Bush is always on about freedom and democracy. It's true that they are great ideals, not that he's, well, I'm going to say not really. <laughs> Dot, dot, dot. Uh, but so so we, 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 just, we, we have them as aspirations, as it might be, but they are defining aspirations for us. And so anybody around about 1990 would have thought, yes, the, West, the Western world has, has triumphed in one way. It's triumphed even if only in the rhetoric of these matters, because now we have these wonderful ideals that people died for in the past, uh, and we now define ourselves in terms of them. And this is where the polemical edge of this, this book comes in. Because if you look at what's happening in Britain and other European countries and in the United States of America today, now, with these suggestions about identity cards and limitations on free speech and holding people in prison for months on end without any kind of indictment or trial, what you see is the thin edge of a wedge, which is the, the unraveling, the, 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 the going back on some of those long fought for and hard won liberties that we have. Most governments in, in the West now argue that their primary responsibility is to the security of their people, to the safety of their people. And in the face of terrorist attack, which of course is very insidious, very dangerous and very terrible, they want to help themselves to measures and means for combating terrorism. 
There might be 60 or 600 or perhaps even 6,000 people in this country who are very, very wicked and bad people. Terrorists, by the way, are just criminals. So we want to dignify them with being with soldiers for great cause or anything. But anybody who thinks that you can indiscriminately murder large numbers of people as a political tool is uh, deceiving himself or herself. It's just, that's just criminality. As we defend ourselves against this criminality, we have got to limit the freedoms of all 60 million people in the country. And we have to impose certain sorts of, of restrictions which eat away at, which corrosively and negatively affect what it took so much endeavor to get. And so, well, I can tell you an anecdote about this. Uh, four or five years ago, well, one thing I do is I, I do some work with the World Economic Forum, which is that great talking shop in Davos. It's always surprised me that the glaciers up there don't melt faster than the climate change do. But I'm a fellow of the World Economic Forum. The World Economic Forum does do some very um, worthwhile things from time to time. And one thing it did was it set up a committee called the C100 Committee, which is about um, maintaining the dialogue between the West, as if that were one thing, and the Islamic world, as if that were one thing, forgetting that there are 62 different sects of Islam. Uh, but of course, it, it's, it's worthy nevertheless, because as they say, jaw jaw is much better than war war, so it's better that there should be lots of different uh, opportunities for people to talk and understand one another. And the, the launch event in Davos that year had um, President Pervez Musharraf of Pakistan on stage, and next to him was uh, um, Lord Kerry, George Kerry, who was our Archbishop of Canterbury here, before uh, uh, Rome Williams, and uh, a man called Prince Turki al-Faisal al-Saud, who had been ambassador to, to the UK and then later to the United States, but who before that had been head of the Saudi Secret Service. And moi, sitting as far as possible away from Pervez Musharraf, who had just survived two assassination attempts, and I, I was very careful, <laughs> I was very careful to see where he was going to sit on stage, so I, I, I could be right at the other end. Anyway, they, they all spoke very eloquently and quite rightly about the need for dialogue and for, and for understanding. And, but they were saying, you know, the West must understand Islam, we must understand Islamic countries, we must understand their aspirations and their fears and, and desires. And I think they're quite right because it's very easy to understand how the globalization of a very liberal Western culture seems threatening to, let us say, a rather conservative-minded middle-aged man in a, a Middle Eastern country who sees you know, an American film with lots of girls in bikinis running around and he's worried about his own daughters and you know, what effect it will have on them. You can understand the, the, the sense of threat and of, of pressure. But when it came to, to my turn uh, to talk, I, I said, yeah, I agree with everything that's been said so far, but it also needs to be registered that we in the West have these values, you know, democracy and individual liberty and equality for women and so on. And it took us such a long time to get them. It was, it was such a hard job getting them that we would be you know, wrong not to, to say to our partners in, in the debate, this is, this is what we value, and these are the reasons why we value it. We want you to remember that, because we don't want to have to give these things up. You know, it would be wrong of us to give these things up. These things too precious and too important. And we wouldn't have the society that we, the societies that we have in, in the West unless they were founded on this process that had brought about this framework of liberties. And afterwards, literally scores, I can't tell you how many people stopped me in the corridors at Davos and said, yes, gosh, it's so easy to forget this and it's something which we just tend not to say or tends not to get said in, in this debate. And that was my motive for, for writing this book because it, it occurred to me uh, at that moment as people were saying, yes, yes, we, we, that's got to be said. We've got to keep on insisting on this fact about us. Because it occurred to me that there is this important connection that I mentioned right at the outset between the political question 
the social question about the nature of individual liberty and the thing on which I spent sort of so much time uh, uh, thinking and, and talking, which is the idea of the individual construction of good lives and, of course, good societies, which are the necessary setting for good lives. Because if we don't have political freedoms, if we don't have genuine individual liberty protected by conventions of human rights, as it might be, or frameworks of law, if we are not you know, going to be conscripted into a corralled and directed populace that has to conform to certain norms. And in the United States of America now, for example, the government, without warrant and without informing you, can look at your library record, what books you've been reading, it can read your emails and so on, can, limiting your ability to express yourself and, and to conduct relationships and to be a free individual. Therefore, limiting your potential, your possibility for the construction of, uh, of the good life. And so the two things come together. Since we are all of us deeply uh, engaged in the project of trying to live really well and reflectively and to think about values, we have to be free to do it. And that freedom is a real political question. And it is one which we are at the beginning of a process now of losing or being in danger of losing unless we think about it and do something about it. Many thanks to you. Good long clap. Um, Anthony, I'd like to start by asking you one question and then we'll throw it open to the floor. You uh, paint a sort of Whig version of history here with the world gradually getting better till 1990 by the accumulation of, of uh, liberal, um, uh, gradual accretion of liberal improvements. But there's an alternative philosophical tradition, isn't there, which is of the social contract, where there's a contract between us, the citizens, and the government. And there's always an area of debate about where that contract lies and what liberties we should have and the extent to which we hand over our freedoms to the state in order to protect us. And can't we just see the recent changes in the last 10 years as just being a slight shift in that social contract? Well, firstly, I agree absolutely that mine is a rather Whiggish and upbeat and optimistic view of, of, of progress in the last five centuries. Um, I used to think that I would be perfectly happy to live in the 18th century if I could take my dentist and his equipment with me. <laughs> but then, but then when, when you really try and think it through, you, you realize that actually you certainly wouldn't want to live in the 18th century if you were a woman or a, a black man or perhaps even a, a white man in England. Um, and, and that, that sets you thinking. You, you begin to recognize that if you had to make a choice about where you would rather be, you would much, really much rather be in the contemporary West than at almost any other point in history, unless you were in a very privileged position. And one thing I say in this book is that uh, most people, so-called ordinary people, because there are no ordinary people in the world, but m most so-called ordinary people today have the entitlements, the privileges, the opportunities, the capacities that in the year 1600 only aristocrats had. Those centuries ago, only aristocrats could do what we take for granted, travel abroad and make certain kinds of choices and live, live, live lives where uh, we exercise a great deal of autonomy. And, and to see the movement of you know, generalizing aristocratic privilege from the very few to almost all of us in, in a Western society today is an extraordinary story. But to pick up the second point you make there about the social contract idea, I mean, I don't think that a Whiggish view of progress, of Western history as being a very progressive one, is inconsistent with the idea of that contract. 
I think what's happened is that the terms of the contract have been progressively renegotiated in favor of us, uh, the, the common man and woman, um, because we've made uh, demands against regimes like the Louis XIV type of absolute monarchy, uh, saying we are owners of ourselves and our relationship with you, the state, or whoever's running the state, has to be one in which you are limited and constrained in what you can do relative to us. And that's a very, very important fact about most Western constitutions, written or otherwise. So I, I don't see any inconsistency there. Thank you for that forceful rebuttal. Um, and now, if the house lights come up, we have roving mics. And if you would like to ask a question, if you raise your arm, and I will direct the mics to you, but please don't start your question. We have one question there from a, la a lady there, I think, and one in the front row here. We'll take the lady here first. How can we ensure that our hard-won democratic principles are not eroded by religious and other beliefs? Um, does it need a legal system? Does it need to have laws made? Do you think that's the answer? Well, it is, although it's a very complicated problem because in an officially secular dispensation like the United States of America, um, which, of course, was set up as a, a, a place with a very sharp division between religion on the one hand and matters of state and government on the other. Um, the different religious bodies have flourished under that dispensation there to the extent that they've become very wealthy and well-organized, very powerful as lobbying groups, and they have a great influence on public policy. And I think the, the ideal situation that we should like to see is as follows. I mean, I think people should be entitled to believe what they want. If they believe in fairies at the bottom of the garden, then they should be entitled to do that. What they shouldn't be entitled to do is to impose anything on other people. They're quite entitled to put their case in the public domain, to, to argue, to put forward suggestions and ideas. But what they're not entitled to, I think, is an undue footprint, a, a, a too large footprint in the public domain. Religious organizations and bodies are, in fact, civil society organizations like political parties and trades unions. Now, if, political, if the Conservative Party or the Transport and General Workers Union wanted our tax money so they could bring up their children as Tories and as trades unionists and so on, we'd be rightly horrified. And yet, this is what's happening all the time with, uh, with the churches. Um, in England and Wales, about, or England in particular, about 3% of the population go to a Church of England service every week. And yet, there are 26 bishops in the House of Lords. I mean, this kind of disproportion should make us sit up and think uh, just to what extent, indeed, very small minorities uh, have amplifiers provided to them by the political process and, and the press. I mean, I think that a lot of, the, a lot of what we've heard in the um, religion debate in the last few years is much more a matter of volume than numbers of, of people. Uh, and, and by the way, and this is a little footnote remark, in the United States of America last year, a poll was done um, seeking the numbers of people who were self-identified evangelicals. They came up with a number, a surprisingly low number, about 35 million people. But people who self-describe as agnostics and atheists number 30 million people in the United States. And the extraordinary difference between the two is that the 35 million evangelicals are well organized. They give their money to these big churches. They have TV stations, radio stations. But the 30 million agnostics and independents are all equal to one person because, of course, they're independent-minded. They're not in organizations and they're not giving their money to things and running TV stations. And that's why they don't have much of a voice and why the evangelicals do. So as I say, it's a question of, of volume. And in our society, uh, faith organizations have you know, big amplifiers provided uh, to them by the way our uh, system works, the fact that they have over-representation uh, in, um, 
in Parliament. Uh, and the fact that until pretty recently, until I think 9-11, which, which I think changed things quite a lot, generally speaking, those of us who, who are, are not religious were inclined to you know, not mind much. Okay, well, if, you, if you're a Christian or something, fine, you know, just frighten the horses. Um, I, I, so somebody once said to me, talking to a Christian is like talking to somebody who's had a recent death in the family, which I suppose is sort of rather apropos. <laughs> and so we, we used to... We, we, we used to sort of pussyfoot a bit around them, and there's an extra. And, and what's changed since 9/11 is that we no longer, or people of religion, no longer feel that they automatically have to respect somebody because they choose to believe a certain thing. I mean, you met somebody who really did believe that there were fairies at the bottom of the garden, and don't forget that until 100 years ago, most of us did. I mean, the reason why our shoelaces went missing and we had itches and pains and so on was because of the fairies. You know? And if, some, if somebody came to you and said, "I believe in fairies." Well, you wouldn't now any longer just automatically respect them for it. You might even think they were a bit of a, you know, an idiot. And so you, you, would, you, you would be much more robust in your attitude towards them. And it's certainly right to be much more robust in one's attitude to the question of just how much of our tax money, how much of government time and space, how much of the legislative process, how much of the public sphere should be taken up by religion. By all means exist, by all means believe what you want to believe, but let us um, recognize that Religious organizations are civil society organizations on a par with all others, and they don't get special privileges. Thank you. <laughs> Question from there, there. This um, is perhaps an extension of uh, Andrew Franklin's point, but um, may I ask, in your uh, scheme of uh, freedom uh, and liberty, where you place crime and punishment? Well, it's a very, very interesting point, that one. Um, we, we used to punish extremely severely in this country right up until the first third of the 19th century. And more people were hanged, for example, for sodomy in this, in this country than they were for murder in, in around about 1810, that, that sort of period. And, and relatively minor crimes like stealing loaves of bread and, and what have you could be punished with transportation or with execution. Um, back back in, in the year 1600, the number of executions performed in uh, England, England and Wales, exceeded the number in China. We've always thought of the Chinese as being particularly indifferent to human life, but of course we, we forget that it, it always did the emperor great credit if he commuted like, uh, sentences of capital punishment, which were all, all of them were referred up to him. Uh, and, and so um, we have to recognize that, that uh, historical processes tend to be very complex and, and variegated things. Not all things move at the same speed. And uh, our treatment of people who don't, who are genuinely criminals, or people who do things like, you know, being gay and so on, uh, that, that, that have ceased to be crimes now, ha has never fully kept in, in step. Although during the 19th century, I think the general reforming tendency, especially in labor laws, uh, the move towards greater education, um, the extension of the franchise, did help to bring about a climate which has seen a very radical revision in thinking about. Uh, legitimate punishment and the nature of crime uh, in the last, I would say, perhaps 100 years. But um, the, the idea of depriving somebody of uh, uh, his or her liberty as a punishment, of course, is the mirror image of the value that we place on individual liberty. And the fact that uh, we, we regard locking people up for life as a very, very serious punishment for a serious crime like murder is, is a reflection of just how valued having your liberty is in our society. And so there is a kind of interesting mirror image relationship there, which it would be interesting to trace 
I don't uh, address that particular issue in the book, however. I look forward to your book on the subject. <laughs> the question over here. Can, can I ask you, I, I wonder if we're not losing some of our um, freedom or some of the freedoms that we've gained um, because of the phenomena of celebrities, advertising and globalisation. Could you say something about that? Yes, I, I think it's always been the case that people who have their hands on the levers of political and economic power have um, found ways of uh, giving people the impression that they were better off and freer and so on when in fact they're not. Um, you, you might look at a, a close analysis of the way democracy works in the United Kingdom to see that in fact what we have is a sort of an elective tyranny since the House of Commons in London if you, all you need is a bare majority and you can do what you like. We don't have any protections against that at all. In the United States of America, a very carefully constructed constitution as a tripartite arrangement in which the, uh, um, the, the, the White House and, and Capitol Hill and the judiciary, an independent judiciary, can constrain one another so that none of them can uh, act out of hand. But then we've seen in recent years that if you have a, 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 a Congress which is all one party and, and a rather partisan president, and they pack the Supreme Court with people who are sympathetic, that you have the same kind of ty tyranny emerging. So, I mean, the implication of your question is, is, a, is a very good one, which is that we can never be 100% uh, sure, and never should we be, that um, our co constitutional arrangements are such that they genuinely protect our, our liberties. And, and perhaps what we really want, if we could find ways of um, reducing the over-rigidity of uh, formalized constitutions such as exist, uh, on the continent of Europe, but which have been, of course, disregarded by one dictator after another uh, in, in living memory, uh, if we could find ways of constructing flexible and um, adaptable constitutions that had as their premise the protection of the individual vis-a-vis -vis the state, then we would be in a much better position than we are now. There's a question over here, I think, with the microphone. Good afternoon. You mentioned ABSOS, ASPOS. Sorry, uh, in a joking manner when you were giving us your very interesting talk. I wondered if we'd do rather better uh, giving less ASPOs and teaching philosophy in our schools. Could we have your thoughts on that, please? Oh, I I'm with you there 100%, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, it's a much more serious point than you think. I mean, I've given talks on philosophy to 12-year-olds who were very good at it. I mean, unlike grown-ups who've sort of hardened you know, their, their intellectual arteries, they've got a, tiny, a little bit hardened, the 12-year-olds are perfectly prepared to accept that this table might not exist, and you can give them all sorts of uh, good, uh, good arguments to that effect, and they will really engage with you on that. But, but the implication of your point is that uh, uh, critical thinking and um, the great importance of uh, living reflectively uh, and of thinking about other people and the consequences of your actions on those other people, all those sorts of considerations, practical ethics, thinking really about um, what it means to be a human being and, and the importance of your relationships even to people you don't know, all those sorts of considerations are, are vital. And it would be terrific if philosophy in that sense were part of the core curriculum and started early, no question about that. And, and I also believe, and it, it may be a, um, you know, a, an over-optimistic thought, but, but I believe that, that um, if people are given the opportunity, the invitation to think about these things and to discuss them much more, if it were something that uh, they were honoured with the opportunity to do, uh, and they were conscious of that, because you know, very often the case with adolescents, that um, their sense of frustration and futility and, and annoyance and irritation at the rest of us is because they're so disempowered, they don't have enough money or enough freedom or enough responsibility, and as soon as they're given it, um, 
quite often it happens that it transforms them. Intellectual responsibility, being offered the opportunity to think and discuss, think about these things and discuss them properly, would, I, I think, have a very good effect. So actually, I'm, I'm with you on that one very much. So. And not just because it's more jobs for the boys. But it, <laughs> Um, hi, yeah, you might, you might actually have partly answered the question I was going to ask, but it sounded in, in your talk like you were making a link between liberty and living a good life and creating a good life. And I guess in a lot of people's experience, individual liberty in this country hasn't led to lots more people wanting to create good lives for themselves and for other people. And I wondered if you thought liber giving people liberty was sufficient or whether something else needed to happen um, and who should be doing that. And that, I mean, obviously religion is plays a purpose, I guess, there for some people in terms of enabling and encouraging people to try and create a good life. But how do we have a society where people don't just aspire for their own liberty, but aspire to kind of live good lives mm. as well? That, that's a very good point. I mean, I, I think the, the tenor of my argument is that individual liberty is necessary for the possibility of a good life, a really, really good life, a life full of satisfaction and achievement, a life which the individual living it feels is flourishing and, and full of achievement. And of course, one has to remember that the, 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 the felt quality of, of a life lies in the endeavor, not necessarily in the achievement. I mean, we all know that if you were at your most generous in your judgment about other people, you wouldn't judge them according to their successes, but according to their aspirations. And it's this idea of uh, giving people the, the scope to, to try to fashion something for themselves, which is really important. But yes, you're quite right. It, that's necessary for the good life, but it's not sufficient for it. Now, what's what, what would be sufficient for it is this. Generally speaking, th th there are two directions you can move in in thinking about lives that are describable as good. One is to go to the supermarket place of ideas and to take out of the fridge the frozen um, package of, of ideas, which, as it might be, might be one or another religion or Marxism. or Anyway, it's something which has got all the answers. And then you just eat that. Okay? And that, that, that's then, then your good life will almost certainly be, con be a life that's constrained by the, the government of this framework that you've, you've chosen to, to uh, adopt. Remembering, of course, that a lot of moralities, and not just religious ones, but you know, ideological ones like Marxism, uh, impose restrictions on people. Religious moralities tend to do it by cutting across the grain of human nature, making us deny many of the facts about us as human beings our desires and needs and things which are apostrophized as, as sinful and which you have to struggle against. The other alternative is the one which is, for, for many people, quite scary and quite demanding, and that is thinking for yourself and being independent and autonomous. The great Immanuel Kant in the 18th century, in his essay, What is Enlightenment?, said the key to enlightenment is autonomy, that is, being the governor of yourself, taking responsibility for yourself, thinking for yourself about how you're going to live. And for some people, that's quite hard. I mean, it's quite vertiginous to you know, sit down on a summer's evening, look at the rain, and think, um, well, now, what are my values and how am I going to live? And, 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 and the fact is that we've, we've sort of forgotten as a kind of collective cultural amnesia about 2,500 years' worth of literature and philosophy and thinking, uh, an immense treasure trove of insight into the construction of good lives that people could go to if they were alerted to them. I mean, the only people who read Aristotle and Cicero and all the rest of them now are university undergraduates in philosophy. But actually, they belong to all of us. So we could go to them and get the materials for our thinking about these things. And then it turns out not to be so difficult and, and spooky to do. And that, that second thing, therefore, the thing that's sufficient for the good life in that second thing is to, to tell people that there is this resource, to invite them to make use of it, 
to challenge them to, to think for themselves. And pretty soon they, they will recognize all the, all the benefits, all the satisfactions that come from being your, 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 the chooser of your life, living a chosen life, not as the football of somebody else's choices and interests, but of your own. Is society too politically correct today? Oh, there's absolutely no, no question about that at all. Um, and uh, the, the sort of cutting edge of political correctness, although one, one finds it absolutely everywhere, is to be found in the academy. Uh, two or three years ago, I had a, a friend visit from Canada, from McMaster University in Canada. And I'd arranged to meet him at six in the evening for, for a drink. And he arrived at about five minutes to six, and I was finishing a tutorial with a, with a pupil of mine. And he, he came and knocked on my door, so I said, oh, come in, come in and sit down. I'm just finishing this tutorial. I've got to give my, my um, student uh, some reading for next week. And I did that. And then my student went off. And this friend from Canada looked at me in absolute amazement. And he said, you're sitting in a room on your own with the door closed with a female student. <laughs> and I said, uh, yes. And I said, boy. He said, you know, in Canada, the door's got to be open. The secretary's got to be sitting outside if you've got a woman on your own with you. That is so sad. I mean, it's just, it's all gone far, far too far. And that's just one tiny little example of a million examples you could cite where we've become so anxious about uh, how we relate to one another. And we've become so over-organized and timid in our thinking at the same time. Organized timidity is a terrible thing. It has a very dampening effect on all sorts of good things in, in life. And, and PC-ness is mainly about organized timidity, although it has good roots. I mean, the, the, the PC movement started with the demand that we, we stop being reflex in our attitudes towards members of the other sex, towards people of other ethnicities and the rest, and that is right and good. But it's not beyond the wit of human beings to, to recognize the force of that demand on us and not to carry it to, to the lengths where you can't you know, talk to your own students. Thank you. Question here, and then I'll only take one more question after that, I'm afraid. I wonder whether in the 21st century the important aspect of um, freedom of thought is the ability to communicate your thought and therefore whether the biggest threat for us is the concentration of media in a limited number of hands. Uh, I'm currently reading Alistair Campbell's diaries. Um, if 1989 was the high point of um, freedom <laughs> of thought, um, I'm at 1995, and the instincts of, of a freshly elected leader of a political party in a democracy as a high priority to go and play court to Rupert Murdoch and his international conference as one of his first acts seems to me to indicate where the blockage is coming and where the limitations on us now rest. Do you know what? That question, uh, now you, you, you and I are both uh, on the sort of shady side of 25. Uh, and, and that question could only be asked by somebody who is what is nowadays in the jargon called an electronic immigrant. That is somebody who doesn't know how to work the DVD player and can hardly, hardly work your mobile phone and has overlooked the fact that the biggest lavatory war in history now exists in the form of the internet on which everybody does graffiti. Isn't that so? I mean, with all the, the blogs and the blogosphere and the, and the you know, comment things, in, in fact, it doesn't really matter that Mr. Murdoch has now got the Wall Street Journal and that the, you know, the media empires are concentrating more and more because this huge overflowing leaking system of communication and information and, and what have you uh, now exists and, it, and there's no way of reversing it without some huge uh, endeavor, somebody really putting the plug on whatever big computer it is that runs the internet. 
Um, because although there's a vast amount of rubbish on the internet, which is the big problem with it, there's no, there are no expert filters there any longer. So you look things up on Google and you get huge amounts of absolute nonsense. Nevertheless, there are also lots and lots and lots of people, just to give you one example, bloggers on the, uh, in the blogosphere, as they now call it, who are very astute, who have got you know, inside track on many things, uh, who do and say things and communicate information literally at the speed of light now, in a way that, uh, that the, the uh, um, Karl Roves and the Campbells simply cannot control. Campbell start, learned his trade as a manipulator of, of news and getting into bed with people like Rupert Murdoch before this phenomenon took off. And we're now at the beginning of a dizzying ride in this respect, where how information is controlled by those who wish to control it is a serious problem. The rest of us, in a way, can breathe a sigh of relief here, because if, if there are things that are militating against liberties, and in this case, freedom of expression, then there are also things which are sort of bubbling up that, that will protect it. Um, it's, it's a bit like you know, get, getting a kicking in private eye. You, you're, you're, you don't like getting a kicking in private eye, or I don't anyway. But, but you, you, you do like the fact that they exist because you want somebody to have the freedom to say those uncomfortable things and to attack people and to you know, dig, dig around in their garbage and come up with the goods. And that's why it's such a good thing that the internet exists. So my, my response to you is to be quite sort of upbeat, really, about that fact. It doesn't any more matter. I would think that Rupert Murdoch is actually quite worried when he goes to bed at night that, that you know, printed paper is somehow not, doesn't look like the future. We'll have to keep this question very short. In the oh, sorry, sorry. Okay. Um, what a responsibility, uh, the last question. Um, first, on the point of information, very briefly, I think it's important to acknowledge that actually the majority of the ordinary question, people... The quick question. Oh, okay, the quick question. The quick question <laughs> is this. Um, uh, in the context of your excellent account of the movement of uh, the, uh, the influence on the intellect from away from the church and into the secular sphere, um, in trying to live your, your own personal good life, uh, how do you reconcile yourself to the responsibility of here in this uh, intellectual cathedral being uh, a bishop of the intellect to those of us in the secular world? <laughs> good question. Uh, well, um, I, I've never, I, I have to say, um, wanted to wear one of those elaborately embroidered frocks. Uh, so uh, I, I'm, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure quite how to respond to that. Um, only a bishop? Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant last question and a, a brilliant last answer. Lots and lots of hands were raised. I'm afraid I can't take any more questions, but the Pope will very kindly be <laughs> in the signing tent and be willing to bestow his blessings upon you individually. Thank you all very much indeed. That was terrific. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks very much.